my guest today runs a company that uh, Sir Richard Branson is a fan of. And uh, uh, if you're a fan of uh, the movie Inception, then uh, uh, today's episode is sort of like being in the second level of the dream. Because uh, while we're recording today's episode, uh, Inc. Magazine is somewhere in the background uh, filming my guest doing this interview as part <laughs> of a day in the life video series. Uh, and so that that person is uh, Polina Raigorodskaya, who's the co-founder and CEO of Wanderoo. Uh, so welcome, Polina. Thank you. Right. And so uh, if we can just talk about this for a second, um, how did this feature with Inc. come about? Um, well, I think uh, at this point, I've, I've built a pretty good relationship with Yasha, <laughs> who uh, works over at Inc. Uh, doing videos, video content there. And so she had reached out a few weeks ago, like a month ago at this point, um, saying that they're doing this new series called The Day in the Life. Um, and the idea is to make it more like a, a vlog rather than kind of this big production where, um, you know, you follow the day of a, a founder's life and get to see what are the things that they do, um, what are the, you know, what is it like to to run a company for a day if you are the CEO of, you know, whatever company, whether uh, it's a, a startup or, you know, whatever other types of companies that they're going to be interviewing. And so I thought it was a really cool concept and something that I had not seen anywhere else before. And so I jumped at the opportunity to be a part of it. Right. So two things. One, awesome content idea for anybody listening. And two, <laughs> you know, hashtag life goals. You know, we should all be so lucky to be featured on Inc. like this. So someday. <laughs> um, uh, and so let, let me also jump back you know, to Richard Branson for a second. Um, you know, you've been to Necker Island uh, because you made it to the finals of the Extreme Tech Challenge competition. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I hadn't heard of that competition until we interacted, what is it, one, two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, how did you come across that competition and what told you that you know, it was worth participating in versus doing something like, you know, raising money from a traditional investor or joining an incubator or something like that? Yeah, so uh, it was very random. I, I came across a post on my Facebook page that one of my Facebook friends had put out um, looking for entrance into the competition. And I was really intrigued because it's Necker Island. Um, but also Richard Branson has been uh, someone that I really looked up to both growing up and, and now running my company. Um, he's been very involved in the transportation space, obviously, having airlines and spaceships and, um, you know, trains and, uh, and, and even train aggregator sites that he started. And so there has always been an interest in meeting somebody that's been so inspirational to me. And so I wasn't really expecting to get anything out of it. Um, and I just randomly applied online and, and we ended up being picked as, as um, semi-finalists. And we went out to pitch uh, to a to a audience in Las Vegas at CES. And we were picked to be one of the, the finalists in the top three and invited to to come out to Necker Island and, and get to pitch to Sir Richard Branson. So that was absolutely an incredible experience. And I encourage actually any other startups, um, this is something that goes on every single year. So look up Extreme Tech Challenge and they're always looking for, for great founders and uh, just 
go and apply and you never know, you might be the next person to get to meet and pitch to Sir Richard Branson. Awesome. And what was the most unexpected thing you saw or experienced on Necker Island? Um, I, I don't know about unexpected. I think <laughs> the the best part of it wasn't even the the location and the island is absolutely beautiful, but it was really the uh, the ability to meet Sir Richard Branson and have him say that he would get on his knees and, and beg to invest in Wanderoo, which really helps validate everything that, that we've built, having those words come out of the mouth of someone who was so inspirational to me and, and to the company. I think just what the last minute was inspiration in itself, I think, to anybody listening to go and like hunt down extreme tech challenge and apply right away. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, absolutely. So, so let's just go back, you know, all the way to the beginning. Um, I, I, I know that, you know, your family came to the U.S. when you were just four years old uh, from Russia on a refugee visa and then settled in the Boston area. Uh, was that your first trip ever? Um, yeah, as far as, yeah, as, as a four-year-old, it was, it was uh, my first international trip ever. Um, it, it was quite a long time ago, so I don't remember a whole lot of the actual trip part, but uh, I can say that it's definitely shaped a lot of my thought processes as an entrepreneur being um, someone that comes from a family that had to give up everything that they had in their life and, and move to a completely new country where they didn't speak a word of English um, and really work their way up where my dad was a pizza driver at Papa Gino's and, um, you know, his manager was a teenager, <laughs> right? So I think that even though the, the actual move isn't necessarily what uh, is the inspirational moment for me, it's it's really kind of seeing my, my parents as they've acclimated to a completely new country and worked their way up to live the American dream. Totally. And is there, however, some other childhood or teenage experience that you think has had a profound impact on the kind of person or even the kind of entrepreneur you've become? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, when we first moved here, I grew up in a really small town outside of Boston, probably about an hour away. And the town was everybody that lived in the town were very similar, right? So I think um, everybody was white, everybody was American, everybody was Christian, like specifically Catholic. Um, and so I really stood out. And I think um, being someone that really stood out early on, you kind of learn to let things roll off your shoulders, right? Because you're, you stick out like a sore thumb and kids you know, aren't always the most diplomatic. <laughs> right. um, and so I think from an early age, I really learned to kind of take things with a grain of salt. And, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, you and, and as a female entrepreneur, especially, um, you know, I've, I've kind of relived that on a number of occasions where I think a lot of people may not have been as exposed to that if uh, they grew up in a different environment. And I just kind of have learned to not let things bother me as much as uh, as as they should <laughs> sometimes. Right. No, and, and you know, I, I read an article you'd written earlier this year in which 
there was this one bit about similar characteristics between being an entrepreneur and being an immigrant. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. But uh, I think this is exactly everything you said that applies to your uh, outsider experience, you know, I think translates so well to everything you go through as a startup founder as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, you definitely... As, and, and it's funny because we just I just went for a walk with uh, my co-founder. Sometimes we'd like to take breaks and go for a walk in the middle of the day to just kind of de-stress. And, and we got on that topic. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. The uh, the immigrant mentality and the things that people have to go through when they they move to a, a brand new country is is very similar to what uh, entrepreneurs have to go through when they build a business. So 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 let's move a little bit ahead. You know, to your college years. Um, so you were doing a business program at Babson University, and uh, you launched a boutique PR firm, and then something happens in 2011 that sparks the idea for Wanderu. Uh, so can you summarize that experience? What happened that told you there's something here? Yeah, so I launched a PR firm actually in 2006, so I was, uh, uh, or maybe even 2005, I was a sophomore Right. at Babson when I started the company. So um, so I ran the PR firm for about six years or so. Um, so after I graduated, I moved out to New York. I didn't have an off, uh, didn't have a car because you don't need a car in New York and I hate driving. And so I, I traveled all the time by bus or train, um, not because I couldn't afford other forms of transportation, but because it was super convenient, it was on demand, I could book my tickets last minute. Um, and there were these new types of bus lines that had recently launched that offered powerlets and Wi-Fi. And so there's this huge value proposition to be able to get on a bus and turn it into a mobile office. Um, but that was kind of what got me first interested in the space is just being, you know, traveling around so much and, and finding the booking process to be extremely frustrating. But in the summer of 2011, I got together with a group of friends, one of which is is now my co-founder. And we wanted to do this cross-country road trip to raise awareness for national parks and forests um, and get millennials outdoors and visiting the parks. And so um, I... Uh, we thought about, okay, what do we need to do to get young people to pay attention? And so our, we decided that we were going to ride share cross country. So go from New York all the way to California, visiting all the various national parks along the way, using complete strangers to give us rides from place to place. And this is pre-Uber and Lyft days, so people wow. thought we were completely crazy. <laughs> yeah, you were uh, completely crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so we partnered with the USD Forest Service. We got corporate sponsors like Panasonic and Manitoba Harvest to give us you know, money for this campaign. And I used my PR background to get us local media and the places that we were going through. And so people started writing to us and offering us rides. We had everything set up for our trip. And then um, we got... We we left in it was end of July. Um, we got from New York to D.C., then to the Shenandoah National Park, and then to the Jefferson Forest in Virginia, to a tiny town called Newcastle. Um, and we got a call from our next ride share saying, "Hey, sorry, something came up, and I can't give you guys a ride." So we ended up getting stranded in the middle of this tiny town of maybe 50 people in the middle of a forest, and um, tried desperately to find a bus or train to get us to our next destination because we didn't have 
a car and, and that was the next closest thing to ride sharing. Um, and there was nothing that served that town. So we had to find something that was in the closest major city, which we found a bus, but it didn't go all the way to our next destination, which was like a 10 hour drive. And so uh, we tried to open up a map and pinpoint all the places that we could potentially go through to connect with another bus or train, um, spent over an hour trying to figure it out and we couldn't. And so we ended up having to rent a car and it was kind of this very frustrating part of our trip. And I got myself and, and my co-founder now kind of really obsessed with this idea where I can figure out anything I want on the internet, but I can't figure out how to get from point A to point B using transportation. And so that's why we launched Wanderu, helping helping people get from point A to point B. That's where the the, the problem that we, we solve today. Right. No, and that's you know such an awesome example of scratching your own itch. Uh, and, uh, you know, so clearly you had a hypothesis that others might have the same problem that you faced in that particular scenario as well. So w what did the MVP or beta of, you know, Wanderu look like that you used to validate your hypothesis? Yeah, so when we first launched Wanderu, we launched just in the northeast of the United States because that's the biggest travel corridor in the U.S., um, and our goal was to get at least 50% coverage because you really want to have a critical mass of useful content in order for uh, people, when you have a marketplace, right? right, you need to have enough stuff for people to buy in order for it to be useful. You can't really open up a store and sell one thing, um, unless you're Apple. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So. Um, and so... Basically, you know, the goal was to get at least 50% coverage in each of the, the markets that we're in. And so once we had 50% coverage, we launched the Northeast and then we quickly expanded region by region across the country. Um, and over the next year, we covered all of the U.S. Then the following year, we expanded to Canada and Mexico. And then most recently, we just launched in Europe. So we now cover close to 50 different countries, um, 10,000 different cities in those countries and, um, you know, 130 million routes. So we've really grown a lot. And right. uh, we're, we're only beginning now. Uh, too true. Uh, so I want to go back to the, the mention you made of the marketplace, right? And so I, you, you have the chicken and egg problem, right? And so how did you get those initial transportation partners on board? Yeah, so that was a huge challenge for us because we were just a couple kids that had no contacts or experience in the transportation space. And so we learned that pretty quickly because it was really hard to get doors opened. Um, and so we thought, okay, we need to find a good advisor that really understands the space, has the contacts, um, understands how bus companies think, um, because we understand how the consumer thinks and we come at the problem um, from the consumer standpoint, but we don't really understand the problem from the bus company standpoint because we've never operated a bus. And so uh, I did a lot of research through, you know, previous uh, CEOs of big bus companies and because we wanted somebody that was no longer in the industry, otherwise it would be a conflict of interest. And I came across Craig Lynch, who was the former CEO of Greyhound, and um, he led one of the first partnerships or the first partnership uh, multimodal partnership between uh, train and bus. They had a partnership with Amtrak and um, he was all about kind of this multimodality, but also the ability to get from point A to point B. And, um, and so I thought, okay, this guy will really get it. And so um, I used my network um, from kind of going to conferences and, and meeting people to reach out to the president of the American Bus Association 
who, uh, because Craig had sat on the board of the American Bus Association, and so he would obviously know him, and asked him to make an intro, and so he did, and Craig became one of our earliest advisors, and then was one of our earliest angel investors, and now sits on our board as an independent director at Wanderoo, and he's been absolutely critical to understanding the bus industry, understanding how bus companies think, helping it, helping make introductions and opening doors and giving us credibility um, when we really just didn't have any any access at all to the market. Um, and he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. That's awesome. Um, so I, I guess you know, this is not something I've heard about commonly, you know, about finding the right kind of advisor early on. I don't think yeah. that gets written about or talked about as often, I think, as it should. Um, but, you know, so this is raises a couple of questions. Um, so you reach out to uh, Craig. Uh, so w what do you say to him that convinces him that, yeah, he should come on board as an advisor? Um, I mean, I think that being an entrepreneur, your job is to convince a lot of people about your vision and why that vision is worth them spending time, right? So whether that's getting co-founders on board, right? And convincing co-founders to drop either the jobs that they have now or, you know, jobs that they could have in the future to come and join a very, uh, it's, it's startups, most startups fail, right? So trying to convince somebody that yours is not going to right. is very challenging to begin with, right? So I think every single stage of, a founder's life, you're convincing somebody of something crazy, right? And so early on, it's your co-founders, then it's your earliest employees or your investors, whichever one comes first, it's your earliest advisors. And so I think ultimately, you know, Craig was very skeptical at first um, when uh, he agreed to do a phone call with me. His first words were, who the hell are you and why do you think you're going to be able to do what you say you're going to be able to do? Um, so it was definitely very intimidating, but I did not let off and um, I convinced him that, you know, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do because I'm a person that doesn't give up and I believe in this vision and I have the right team in place to make this happen. And I understand this from a consumer standpoint. And we spend a lot of time talking and realize that we wanted a lot of the same things and he really got the vision and he ultimately believed in me. So at the end of the day, it's about convincing your earliest co-founders, your earliest employees, your earliest investors, your earliest advisors to believe in you because that's that's who is going to make or break your business. Yeah, totally. And is there a dynamic with advisors, you know, similar to investors where your startup has to have, you know, achieved a certain level of something whether it's traction or you know, something that demonstrates potential you know, to raise your odds that an investor will be convinced or is it just more uh, being able to, you know, tell your story effectively? Yeah, I mean, I think the stakes with advisors is lower, right? So they have their reputation, they have their time, but they're not putting up money unless they're investors into the business. So I think the stakes are slightly lower, but at the end of the day, um, they it's the belief that this particular entrepreneur is going to be the one to solve that problem. And so I think um, your what you have done to date will certainly help prove that out um, because ideas are a dime a dozen and anybody can have ideas. It's about 
did you put the right team in place? So when we brought Craig on board, we already had, you know, the initial co-founders. We had a couple engineers that we had already convinced to to join Wanderu as well. And, you know, I was bootstrapping the company and so was my co-founder. We put all of our, you know, savings into this. And so they he saw that we were serious. He saw that we were able to put together a great team. We had initial interest for some from some partners. Um, and so I think that that certainly helped versus just coming to somebody with an idea and saying, hi, I have this great idea. But also you don't need an advisor when you have a great idea. You need an advisor when you're ready to execute on that idea. And getting the things in place to be able to execute is like, we didn't need to sign bus companies right away. We needed to prove that we can actually build what we claimed we were going to be able to build. Right. Uh, and so just a last question around this area of you know, advisors. So it's great that, you know, Craig could open up doors for you, you know, and you can get that meeting, but you've still got to convince that ground transportation partner to actually, you know, go ahead and, you know, partner with you. So do you recall with the first transportation provider that you ever spoke to, you know, what part of your argument, you know, tipped the person over? I mean, at the end of the day, they don't have to pay anything to be on Wanderoo uh, until we sell them tickets, sell their tickets, right? So I think uh, the fact that they didn't have to put, and I'm not going to say it was easy by any means. It took us probably about a year to get our first partner on board okay. um, and to convince one. And then the way that the industry works, and it's probably the same with other industries, is once you have one company convinced, yep. it's easier to get others because people like to you know, follow trends based on what others are doing. Um, and so I think the the fact that we really provide a unique service that, um, you know, we're a point-to-point search. We help find the closest station from where someone's traveling from, where they're going to. In real time, we're able to route multiple companies together into one itinerary. So in essence, a company that might be only regional becomes national because they become a part of our network and a customer can book a ticket from, say, California and then connect to this company that's located in, you know, New Hampshire. Um, And they would never have access to that customer before. So proving out that we're bringing them new customers, incremental customers, and they only pay us when a ticket is booked is, you know, it's a pretty good deal. It's not like there's a, you know, $100,000 sign up cost and then extremely expensive integration and it may or may not work. Right. All right. No, that makes complete sense. So I just want to go back to the other side of the marketplace. So you've got all these transportation partners. How did you get your first users and paying customers? Um, so for us, we initially we tried a lot of tests, right? So before we even started, and this is also what helped us with uh, getting initial partners on board and, and getting uh, Craig as an advisor is um, before we even built anything, we would run basic tests um, where we would create landing pages and then we, you know, our hypothesis was people want to be able to compare and book multiple different providers under one platform like they do for, for Air, um, but that's just a hypothesis. So until you actually have customers that are willing to use your platform, it doesn't really mean that it's going to be a successful business. And so what we did is we created landing pages um, and the landing page would, for instance, would say, you know, Boston to New York bus, compare all your options, right? And it would have a button that would say, like, you know, search or compare or whatever, right? Big red button. Right. Uh, and so once they landed on that page, um, 
it would go uh, to another page that would say, you know, we're currently in beta, sign up to get access to it, right? And they would enter their email and we would put it into our email list. And, you know, once we had a beta, we would email all those people and give them access to it. And so initially we ran just basic uh, SEM tests where, uh, you know, Google offers, you know, $100 or whatever it is to try out AdWords. And so um, we just tested to see how much it would cost us to get those emails. Um, And once we felt you know, okay, people are actually clicking these ads coming in and and um, signing up to to get access to our beta, right? We started creating more landing pages for SEO and creating content um, so that people could organically come in and, and into the site. And so we already started building up kind of organic uh, traffic to the website before we even launched our beta. And we also were able to generate a pretty sizable sign-up list for our beta so once we did launch, we were able to email all those customers and say, hey, we're now live, or not live, we're now in, in private beta that you have access to, and um, you know, customers would come back and search and, and play around. And, and at that point, we were also able to build up some credibility on Google for SEO um, for the relevant you know, keywords that we wanted to capture. Um, and so that really helped propel once we were actually live and be able to, to grow our SEO traffic. So, so did you do any content marketing early on or did that happen much later? I mean, it was all content marketing, but it wasn't like writing, I mean, we wrote blog posts, but we wrote blog posts targeting specific keywords right. that we wanted to attract customers. Got it. So I don't want to you know, leave out the bit about your co-founder because I, I know Igor, you know, you've known him since high school, I believe. Middle school, uh, middle, yes. Yeah, and I've I, I read somewhere that you know you described him as your best friend. Uh, yes. And you know I've I've read some advice out there about not going into business with really good friends. Uh, I mean, to be fair, he wasn't my best friend before we started one group. We were part of a, the same group of friends. I think running a company together, you end up spending so much time, and and you need to trust the person that you're running a company with. So I knew him well enough to know that we. You know, we we worked together on the project along with other friends for the campaign that we did uh, to raise awareness for national parks and forests. And we saw that we could work really well together. And so that was kind of a test run of a partnership. But I wouldn't say that we were best friends then. Um, You know, we were friends. But I think going through through running a startup, you end up becoming best friends with your co-founders. Like you either become best friends or worst enemies. And, and <laughs> right. in, in our case, we were lucky that, um, you know, we, we picked the right co-founders that we, we were able to get along and equally provide uh, a very different thing that we bring to the table. Um, and, and we get along really well. So, so would that be your advice to anybody you know, looking to start up with you know, a friend is do a test run of some sort before or? Yeah, no, you know? absolutely. I think that that really helps, uh, helps you see how you work together. And it's when you do something that, you know, has an expiration date, it's much easier because if you try to do a company together and it doesn't work out, it can be very costly. Um, whereas if you do a project that, that is not permanent right? Right. Um, and has a, an expiration date, then you're able to see how you work with a person before uh, running the running a business together. But I don't think that that's necessarily 
uh, always going to happen because not everybody has these like expiring side projects that they want to work on to test a person. Um, so I think, you know, what you really want to do is ideally you want to find somebody that you know well, right? Um, and then you need to use your judgment. You need to use your judgment based on past experiences with the person. And uh, you also want to make sure that each of you bring something different to the table because at the end of the day, if each of you are doing the exact same thing, one of you is redundant, right? right? So um, you want to find somebody that uh, that balances you out, that provides something that you uh, that plays on your strengths and you play on their strengths, and, uh, and and you're running a business together that you're not doing the exact same thing. And so, have you ever had like a giant disagreement with him ever? Um, no, honestly. Like, you have disagreements with people pretty frequently on different things, but not to an extent. I mean, the way that we, we and, and it's not just for co-founders, the way that we I run the company in general is, you know, I, I'd like to hire people that are incredibly smart and then trust them to do their jobs. Um, and at the end of the day, I may disagree with these people, um, but if I hired you because you're the smartest person, you're smarter than me, in this particular field, then regardless of whether I agree or disagree, I will give you, you have the right of, you know, the right to veto any decision that I have. Um, I'm going to let you decide what it is right. And at the end of the day, like, I want people to not feel like they can't make mistakes. Mistakes are right. fine as long as you learn from those mistakes. Um, and, and at the I think ultimately the same goes between Igor and I. There are things that he focuses on, specializes in. There are things that I focus on, specialize in. And do we have disagreements sometimes? Yes, we do. But ultimately, it's whoever is in charge of that particular realm. You know, what's most important is that you listen to the disagreements and you try to understand why does this person disagree. And if you listen to each other, you know, there have been times that I've disagreed. And even though he was it was ultimately his decision. Once he listened to why I disagreed and, and understood, he was like, okay, that makes sense. I will, I will change my mind as well. And, and it's happened the other way too, vice versa. Um, so ultimately it's fine to have disagreements. It's all about how you work together and respect each other to listen to those differences and try to understand why that person thinks that way. And, and then use, use the best knowledge you have to make a decision. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so let's move the story forward, uh, you know, and let's slowly make our way to you know what's happening today. Uh, but b before we get there, um, do you have a recollection of, you know, especially from your early days, was there a really big challenge or maybe even an existential challenge that you faced and clearly you overcame it, but was there something where you were like, we're done or close to it? <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> I feel like in the in the start of a business, and and this is it's so funny that I'm revisiting so many conversations that I had today in general. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but uh, I had an opportunity to have lunch with one of my friends who's a founder, and his company is a little bit earlier stage than ours. And he was talking about how he's always putting out fires, but um, but the fires are are different at that stage than they are at the stage that we're at. Right. Like we end up having to put out fires too, but they're a different set of fires. Um, and so in the early stage, we had a partner, a really big bus company that 
is is one of our partners now, but we were trying to get them signed and we got all the way to a final contract with them. Um, and then I get an email while we're on a bus to South by Southwest who where we ended up winning most innovative technology. And I was hoping to announce this partnership there because it's this critical partnership. And I get an email saying we're going to have to hold off, which was insane to me because we're like, we have this final contract. And I just remember being and we did. We took buses all the way to South by Southwest. So it was, I, I was actually on their bus at the oh time that God. I got that email. I'm like, pull the bus over. I need to get off. I don't want to look at this company right now. <laughs> um, but and I remember that, like, the feeling was really crappy, right? Just like feeling like that's it. It's over you know, where we have nothing like, and we had some other partnerships, but they were really small. Like this was going to be like the big announcement that we wanted to make. Um, but we ended up winning South by Southwest anyway. We met one of our, uh, the first VC fund that ended up investing in Wander in our series A. And then, um, you know, we launched our beta and, you know, we ended up getting that partner, you know, six, nine months down the line. Right. Um, and at the time, it really felt like it was going to kill the business. Right. <laughs> um, in reality, what I realized, and I've actually talked to the um, like an executive at the from that company since, and I kind of give them crap about it. I'm like, you know, <laughs> you really screwed us in the beginning, kind of thing. But um, you know, but in that conversation, I, I actually thanked him. I'm like, I'm actually really glad that that happened because we weren't. If we had signed that partnership, we weren't even in beta yet. We hadn't even launched anything, right? So we would have signed them. We would have integrated them. Then once we launched, in the very beginning, Wandru, you know, we had very few users. We had the, you know, whatever, 20,000 or however many thousands of users that signed up for our beta. But not every single one of them is booking bus tickets. So there's a huge number that dropped off. And, like, the amount of tickets we were selling per day were, like, in the single digits. Right. Right. And it took a little while to ramp up. But by the time we actually signed the company and got them launched, we had a lot of users. And we were growing really fast. And... So they were actually able to see the value of Wander. But if we had launched them then and they saw that we were selling, you know, a ticket right. a day, whatever it was, they, it, they very well could have pulled out and we could have lost that partnership forever. Right. right. And so I actually thanked him. I'm like reflecting on that. It actually turned out really well because and, and, and he said, yeah, that's why I knew I knew that. That's why I just said, so, yeah, so the point of the story is I think a lot of times founders take things really personally. And, of course, there are things that could kill your business, right? Like, re really, the number one killer to startups is running out of money, right? You run out of money. It's Money is the oxygen that keeps your company going. It, it keeps yep. you breathing. You don't have money, um, you know, and, and you have a burn. You're kind of in a very rough place, right? And, and so there are certain things that can definitely kill your company, but I think, um, you know, there's lots of things that, that you think are the end of the world. And um, oftentimes when you reflect on it, you know, whether it's months down the line or years down the line, you realize that it's actually the best thing that could have happened to your business. Absolutely. And, and I'm a firm believer of everything happens for a reason. You may not like it at the time, but <laughs> there's a good reason for it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, you know, so let's, you know, cut it today, you know, you've raised money, more money, you know, business is growing, team is growing, and uh, I, I know you're hiring, so anybody listening, you know, if you're looking to join a kick-ass team, you know, head on over to wanderoo.com and, you know. Uh, Please. <laughs> yes. Um, and so if you're open to sharing, uh, how many times 
a month a year does the average user book transportation on Wanderoo? Um, so the average repeat user books right around you know five times a year. Okay, and so w what do you do in the meantime to keep yourself top of mind, or do you even need to? Um, so we do a number of things. So we have uh, we do email marketing, which kind of sends out deals every single week to to users, um, and I think that that definitely helps stay top of mind. Um, we do a lot of just content posts. So um, we have some data posts that, that we've done in the past. And, I love those. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, and those have, have proven to be really great to kind of re-engage users, but also attract new users that may not be looking to book bus tickets today, but it helps with brand building. Um, you know, we've done some out-of-home campaigns where we run – um, you know, ads on, on subways in New York City, Boston, and Chicago. So that also helps just staying top of mind so that when the user is looking to book a ticket, not only are you able to acquire users, but it also helps with trust and, and reacquiring users that have used you in the past. Right. And so what would you say is your best converting acquisition channel right now? Um, I mean, I think if you're looking for direct bookings, then, you know, AdWords and SEO, really targeted SEO is is the best converting because you can really target people that are specifically looking to go from point A to point B yep. and they're in in the mindset of shopping. Um, but that's not necessarily the highest lifetime value user, right? Okay. Because oftentimes somebody that's searching online for a trip from point A to point B is probably not a frequent bus user because they need to turn to Google to find out what buses there are, right? right. So they're traveling by bus every single week or every single month or whatever it is. Um, and so I think uh, if you're looking for a, a more long-term high lifetime value user than some of the other campaigns like maybe social or um, out of home or these data posts are a better way to do that because you're able to really target and get in front of the demographic you want to get in front of, but um, they may not book a ticket now, but they may book a lot of tickets over, you know, their lifetime. Right. Uh, so it, it really depends on what the intent is and who, what type of user you are looking for. Got it. And so an another thing that's happened is that now you can book, you know, hotels and cars and even flights on Wanderer. Even flights, here, yes. Right? And so and we plan to, to do more and more of that and integrate it more and more into our platform. Right. So, you know, what, what signal or data, you know, told you that, you know, going broad into these related areas, you know, was the right way to go or a better way to go versus you know, expanding ground travel options in other regions or countries or continents, right? So wide versus deep. Yeah, so I think ultimately it's about listening to your existing customers, right? So, um, you know, looking at customer service trends, looking at uh, feedback in reviews, whether it's app reviews or other, you know, social media reviews um, and understanding what that customer is saying. So, you know, at a certain point, we realized that a lot of people were asking for the ability to book hotels or the ability to book and compare flights. Um, and and it's using people to your existing customers to determine where your product should go, I think is extremely important, right? We decided to launch in Europe, not because 
you know, Europe's cool. I like Europe, but it wasn't like a, a random right. decision. It was based on, okay, we have a number of our customers that are already searching there. We have a number of our customers requesting for us, you know, to go there um, via whichever channels they choose to communicate with us. And uh, using that data to determine what to do as a product is, is extremely important for us. We're a very product-focused company. We're a very user-centric company. And, um, you know, we care deeply about what our users think. And that's what allows us to create the brand that we've been able to create is by listening to our customers. And, um, you know, through doing that, we determine, you know, what are the areas that are important to them that, uh, and take that back to, to our own product. Right. And of course, the most obvious sort of thing that happens when you get into hotels and cars and flights is now you're encroaching onto uh, the quote-unquote big boy territory of the Expedias and the Travelocities and you know, even the kayaks of the world. Um, and so, you know, is that even a concern for you or, or you know, that, you know, these people have, you know, been around bigger companies, bigger budgets uh, and how you might uh, compete against them, or is that not even a concern? And you know, you're just going to stay focused on your users. Yeah. So I think the the last two words you said yeah. is uh, is the answer to, to that question. Yeah. Our users are very different than the people that use traditional travel sites. I mean, there's there's some overlap there, sure. but. We are very heavily uh, millennial centric. So, um, you know, 80% of our users are under the age of 45 um, and uh, they don't use traditional travel sites. Mm. So if you look at the demographics of the Expedias, the Pricelines, even the Kayaks, uh, they skew much older. Sure. And so what we see is the ability to carve out a niche focused on this demographic and really um, building a product that caters to them, um, starting with buses and trains because there's nowhere else for them to book those trips. And they are who makes up the, the largest portion of, of travelers. Um, but in the long run, you know, we want to continue building up on that and really understanding our users and our audience and creating a product that's really custom fit for them that they, they can't get from traditional travel sites. Yep, got it. Uh, and so what, what I like to do is, you know, as we get towards the end of these is sort of, sort of you know, sort of take the gentle off-ramp and find out more about, you know, you as the person. And I think that tends to, you know, give even more of a flavor you know, to your approach to entrepreneurship. And so uh, do you think there's any similarities between traveling and entrepreneurship? Um, absolutely. Okay. I think uh, when you travel, you are forced to learn lots of different things, experience completely new cultures and experience completely new things. Um, and, you know, I think that as an entrepreneur, it's it's very similar. You're kind of thrown into the mix right. and you just kind of have to figure it out um, and, you know, be open-minded. And I, I also think that traveling allows you to open your mind up to other cultures and, um, you know, being an entrepreneur, you need to be very open-minded. And, um, yeah, so I, I definitely think that there's yeah. those similarities. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh and I've also heard that, you know, you will never buy anything at full price. Is, is that a true statement or is that a rumor? <laughs> <Don't do> that. 
um, I think that that goes back into the millennial mindset, right? right? Okay. Like, you know, you're a bargain. Hu- I'm a, I'm a bargain hunter, not because I can't afford it, but because I feel like I I win something right. <laughs> and get a better deal. Um, and I think that's just a millennial mindset overall, right? And okay. and that's why you know price comparison sites do so well, even though less than three percent of our users soar by price but they still get the best deal. Like ultimately, even if you're spending a bit more money to get a higher price ticket, you're still getting the best deal on that ticket and you're able to actually compare and and compare your options based on what you're looking for, whether that's time, whether that's, you know, luxuries. We have luxury buses on Wanderoo. We have uh, a Sela, um, and which is quite pricey. And we sell a lot of that, um, not because people are looking for the cheapest thing. It's because they're looking for the perfect fit for them and, and getting the best deal based on um, what they're looking for and their criteria. I, I also read that you know, you're a certified scuba driver. I am. Yeah, yeah. I love to dive, actually. Yeah. Uh, I was in Florida for a conference. Right. Um, speaking at a, the Florida Motor Coach Association meeting on Tuesday, and I actually flew down on Friday and spent the weekend there because my parents live in Fort Lauderdale, and I went diving on Saturday. So um, this is my first dive of the year. Oh, nice. Uh, so do, do you have a favorite diving spot in the world, if you could go anywhere? Key Largo, uh, John Penny yep. Camp, uh, they have reef Reef State Park, um, was where I went diving over this past weekend. That's also where I got certified, and that's one of my favorite places that I've gone diving at. It's absolutely incredible, the amount of coral. They have a mile-long coral there, um, and they have you know all different types of sharks. Uh, the the dive guide uh, that I was that was on the boat with me uh, showed me a picture of a hammerhead shark that he saw there a few weeks back, and I was like, wow, I didn't even know. And a whale shark. I didn't even know there were whale sharks or hammerheads. <laughs> and I think this is one of the best kept secrets is many people don't realize that you have this like amazing dive site in the United States. So many people will fly to Australia or you know Bali or whatever it is, but um, there's quite good diving right here in our in our own country so that was really exciting and a pleasant surprise and and I've um, gone back there several times Um, where else I think um, Bonaire has absolutely incredible diving where you can just walk offshore and um, they have this like wall so you just you go right from shore so you don't even need to get on a boat so that's super cool Bonaire is got some beautiful coral as well. Um, St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands yep. has incredible, um, it's, it's two-thirds national park, and part of the national por- park is actually in the water, and it's coral that like surrounds the entire island, um, and they have uh, like an underwater, it's the only known, it's the only underwater uh, trail Wow. The national park where you can just go snorkel, so it's it's actually really great for snorkeling as well. Right. Um, so. So so speaking of the U.S., uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you've been to every state in have, in the yeah. U.S. Um, is there? Oh, you really did your research. I did. You know, I you know I, I do my work. Um, and uh, do, do you have a place in the U.S. outside of Boston, of course, uh, that stands out for some reason? Um, Alaska is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I really like Alaska. I mean, I, I love traveling, so it's really hard to say, um, what's the best. Oh, no, I know uh, I'm making you pick. And Alaska's you- beautiful. Uh, Yellowstone National Park is incredible. Um, you know, 
U.S. Virgin Islands again. <laughs> St. John my, is my favorite place in the Caribbean by far. And what about outside the U.S.? I know you've been to many, many countries. Is there a destination that's particularly memorable for some reason? Um, so Myanmar was absolutely beautiful. Um, and really, really kind of the food was incredible and um, it's virtually untouched by tourists. Um, so I found that to be really interesting. Uh, I have not traveled anywhere else in Asia, so um, I need to get over there. I'm sure there's there's oh. tons to explore there. India, um, come on. India. India is just waiting. I have not been to India, so I would love to go to India. Um, I have not been there yet. Yeah. It's on my list. Uh, Asia is unfortunately far, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's hard to get over there, especially when running a startup and I just don't have a whole lot of time to travel. Um, Croatia, uh, Bosnia, and Montenegro are incredibly beautiful and I think some of the best kept secrets in, in Europe. Um, so that's some of my favorite places in, in Europe to travel. Um, Colombia, Venezuela, back when you could actually travel right. to Venezuela, um, is incredible, um, especially uh, islands off of Venezuela uh, in, a, in a national park called Morocoy. Um, everywhere, basically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this, this was really awesome. I, I think there was a lot of learning in here, especially about you know, early days of starting up, I think the whole thing about getting the right advisor on early on, I think, was just priceless. Except that's just something I think people don't focus on enough. Uh, and I think we got a lot of great travel tips as well. Uh, and um, uh, but before I let you go, uh, is other than wanderu.com, is there a place people can stay in touch, follow you? Uh, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm on Instagram. And I'm on Twitter, so um, Paulina travels on both of those, so they can they can follow me there. Um, my Instagram will have a lot more of my my travel related experiences and some of the wanderer experiences. So it's a little bit of mix of those two. Um, I'm a lot more active on that than on Twitter, but you, they can follow me in, in either place. Awesome. All right, so this was great, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope the, the Inc. people got some good footage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was great. And if you thought this episode was awesome too, then please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and I'll see you on the next episode further down the beaten path.